Democracy. Atomic bomb. Crime. From threatening freedom. We fail. And freedom fail. Welcome to the Out of Order podcast from the German Marshall Fund, where we explore how the world was, is, and will be ordered. Today, we're going to look at the question of whether the West is a club of values or just a club of security interests. Or to phrase it differently, can a liberal club have illiberal members? We're going to go at this big topic through a specific case, uh, namely the case of NATO member state Turkey, which is having a few different points of conflict with some of its other NATO allies at the moment. Here to talk about this question with me today are two of our uh, European office experts. Guys, how about you introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Özgür Ünlüsacıklı. I'm the Ankara Office Director at the German Marshall Fund. Hi there, this is Jan Techel. I'm the Director of the Europe Program at the German Marshall Fund based in Berlin. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of Out of Order, uh, normally based in the Berlin office, but we are all together in D.C. this week. To jump into the topic, one of the criticisms of the liberal international order or the West is that it's more about order than it is about liberalism. Uh, it's about you know preserving power um, rather than promoting these values that they claim to support. For today's conversation, we're going to take on one specific part of that, which is to talk about NATO and its dilemmas on values versus security, let's say. And how far can this club stretch and how diverse can its members be before it doesn't work anymore? You know, NATO isn't the West necessarily, but I think you can make the case that NATO is um, is a very quintessential Western organization and therefore is a pretty good stand-in for the West. Jan, uh, I'm going to start with you. So the founding treaty of NATO, the Washington Treaty, refers very clearly to common values in its preamble. It mentions the principles of democracy, individual liberty, and rule of law. How important have these common principles really been for NATO? Is it a democratic liberal organization or is it really just a security alliance against the then Soviet Union and today Russia? Um, I think the answer to that question really depends a lot at the time frame that you look at. Um, NATO is a military alliance, which means that its purpose is actually compared to the European Union, for example, that other big pillar of the Western Europe, is comparatively narrow. Um, when you look at the time in which NATO was really there as an organization that was ensuring our common survival during the Cold War, um, values played a comparatively smaller role because the overarching and overruling question was how can we survive in a possible military confrontation? And that's why NATO was able to accommodate um, non-democratic partners at the time, you know, ranging from Portugal and Spain to Greece and Turkey. And that was perfectly possible because the overarching, you know, um, uh, shared interest was to stand together in an anti-communist pose against Soviet Union and its allies. After the end of the Cold War, when that question of ultimate survival played a smaller role uh, and was less important, was not any, in the foreground any longer, the values debate really kicked up and NATO became um, an agent of change for those countries from the former Soviet Union and the former Warsaw Pact that wanted to join the West. It became a, an, an instrument of, of transformation. And as a consequence, the values debate, you know, became hugely important. Um, and and uh, to the extent that it became the existential core of NATO itself. Now, you know, ever since Crimea... And and the crisis that we face in our relationship with Russia and for some member states in NATO, um, it has an existential 
uh, quality again, um, all of a sudden, you know, the values debate starts to be pushed a bit further to the side again. And that poses problems, of course. You know, going back and forth of the values uh, on the values issue is, is not easy for an organization and, and it raises all kinds of issues and that's why there is a debate. As a rule of thumb, I would say that a military alliance can be quite flexible on values, more flexible than, for example, the EU can, but it's never an easy thing because in the end, um, the West wants to stand for something but once an overarching question of survival arises, you know, compromises will be made uh, on on values. Inevitably, that's not a great thing, but I think it lies in the nature of the beast. Okay, so, um, and you mentioned that debate is is maybe a little more tempered right now on on the values issue, but, um, and and you might be right, but I think Turkey is, is a bit of an exception. There is a really loud debate about Turkey and NATO right now. Uzga. Um, Turkey's been a member since almost since the founding of NATO, but it's been the last two years where I think you're hearing a lot more sort of soul searching about Turkey and NATO. Is this accurate in your opinion? You know what's what's happening in Turkey? Why is why is this debate loud now? And and is it the right debate to be having? Well, it's always the right debate to be having because, as Jan has said, well, values even if they are not at the core of. Uh, the transatlantic alliance or NATO are still very important, that they are, they are what uh, bring us together. However, in the case of Turkey, I would absolutely not focus on the last two years for the following reasons. First of all, Turkey has never been a fully liberal democracy. It's not that Turkey had a golden age in its democracy and is losing it. Uh, as a matter of fact, Turkey has been in a democratization process from the beginning of the republic in 1923, but this process has never been linear. Periods of democratic advance have been followed by periods of military rule. Or, you know, as some people say, Turkey uh, looks like an accordion that opens and closes uh, from time to time. And it, as it happens, we are in a period in which the accordion is closing in Turkey. This is a time of democratic backsliding. Having said this, this is not happening against, uh, against liberal values, let's say, being promoted in other transatlantic members, transatlantic allies. Actually, liberal values are on the decline almost in every and each and every member of the transatlantic alliance, and it's happening in Turkey uh, maybe in a more intensive way. So what are we facing in Turkey right now? Until recently, Turkey was defined as a tutelary democracy, uh, which was a democracy under the tutelage of the military. So with the latest developments, the military has been uh, exited out of the system. So the military is no longer a player uh, in Turkey's political system, at least for the time being. But this has not left us with a liberal democracy. Uh, on the contrary, it has led us to a competitive authoritarian system in Turkey in which there are several problems with rule of law. Actually, rule of law is subjective. The judiciary is not independent. Media is not free. Civil rights are not guaranteed. Having said this, still political power is derived through democratic institutions and particularly elections. And elections, yes, they are unfair, but unlike in other places like Russia or Azerbaijan, they are quite real and they are quite competitive. And there is a dyna very dynamic political class in Turkey, a very organic society which can regroup at any moment. And there is a uh, resurgent civil society and political competition uh, is is very real uh, and very strong. So it would be 
wrong to assume that this is the end of Turkey's political history and Turkey has been stuck uh, at an illiberal stage. Uh, I do not agree with this. And I believe that in a couple of years, we will see again Turkey moving towards a more liberal democracy. Yeah, and do you think we should keep Turkey in for that reason, right? Because it's just a process and this might be a sort of downward swing, but there'll be an upward swing. Or should we keep Turkey in because uh, it's a matter of survival and it's just smart in terms of security? I think, I mean, both reasons are valid and both should be taken in con- into consideration. I mean, uh, when it comes to the to the mere core purpose of the military alliance, you want to keep um, uh, Turkey in because it is of strategic value um, to the alliance as a whole uh, on this, you know, perennially kind of fluid, volatile southeastern flank of NATO. It is a key player. It has uh, by far the largest military uh, of all of the NATO partners after the United States. Um, It is, you know, a bridge into the Middle East, into Central Asia, uh, vis-a-vis Russia. uh, And and, uh, it is an energy transit country. It is an up-and-coming European big power. Inevitably, Russia, uh, Turkey will be a big power in Europe uh, in the future. Um, it is hungry, it is young, uh, it's up and coming. You want to keep that kind of country inside a NATO. Um, and then, um, but also on the other side, I mean, uh, if as long as you do have, through NATO membership, a modicum of influence of what happens in the country, you want to retain that influence. Um, you know, those easy calls for kicking them out, that's very tempting. You know, when another kind of Erdogan policy doesn't find your approval, then you vent your anger and you say, you know, they can't be any longer in, in, in Turkey, in, in, in NATO. But, you know, the alternative is kicking them out and then you lose all of your influence and all of the kind of ties that bind. Um, so even from that uh, you know, standpoint, I think it makes uh, it makes no sense. And I also, I do agree that at some point Turkey's development will be a different uh, one. You know, the, there's always some sort of tomorrow. Uh, and so, and you want to keep your channels open for when that point comes where Turkey decides that you still have an influence over that. I think that's absolutely crucial. Uh, and for both reasons, for strategic reasons and for reasons of devo- development of Turkey in the future, I think we should have a very, very sober, you know, less emotional approach to the Turkey issue. Okay. If we took a sober approach, Uzga, um, can you think of, I don't know, something you would think that would be a line, right? So, you know, not everything that Erdogan does or the government does that we might not like um, should create this kind of new calls for um, banning them. But wh- where can we draw the line? Is there a line somewhere that NATO should think about drawing? Well, Rachel, as a matter of fact, the NATO treated does have an exit clause. So at some point, at least theoretically, Turkey could decide to exit NATO, but NATO does not have a kick-out clause. So NATO would need unanimity uh, to kick Turkey out, and it will not happen so long as uh, Turkey is not in agreement. Uh, So I think that there cannot be, a line cannot be drawn regarding this. So if NATO allies want to support Turkey's democracy, I think they should do that bilaterally and through the European Union, uh, rather than uh, through NATO. Oh, okay, so NATO is not the right space to kind of put this pressure it's practically on. Practically not possible. Yeah. And what about, so you mentioned Turkey could leave if they wanted. They can't be kicked out, but they can leave. Actually, do, is anyone in Turkey talking about that? Well, there are some eccentrics uh, talking about it, but I think Anybody who knows how to add and subtract uh, would understand that it's not a realistic idea. Uh, Why am I saying this? Because if Turkey one day left NATO, it would need to duplicate all the all the assets that NATO is providing it with right now. And it would be very expensive. 
Interesting. So you both mentioned this idea of, you know, so you have a you have a group that's come together around common values and common interests. That's the alliance. But you also have the function of the alliance to kind of keep that club together or pull it back in when it's when it's getting, you know, further away from our common space of values and interests. But I think there was the case of Greece in the 70s, I'm not going to remember the dates correctly, where you had um, an opposition that basically was, you know, angry with NATO for not having stood up to the oppressive government. Um, So I wonder if there's, you know, if there's that side of it as well, if there's a sort of opposition in Turkey or, you know, we can also think about countries like Hungary who, um, who then when they get into power are going to be upset at NATO or, or, or even now, you know, they're not in power, but they expect kind of more moral leadership from NATO. I, I can, I think, only back up what uh, Oscar just said. Uh, it's possible that the opposition at some point might you know, look at NATO and be unhappy about the fact that the organization is not doing much. But, you know, NATO is not the vehicle. It is not the vehicle. Um, you don't want to overburden a military alliance with its fairly narrow mandate um, with this kind of, you know, political charge um, that will drive a wedge between member states. Because your overarching concern in NATO is maintaining a strategic alliance, you know, that uh, can ensure stability and 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 security. And as much as you might be tempted uh, to do this inside of NATO, you will actually, you know, that that's not the kind of discussion that NATO is really prepared to have. So the bilateral pressure, uh, and uh, of course, in those cases, you know, the most efficient way is the non-public way of doing this. That's the way to go about it, to actually show to uh, a member state that you know is not following the rules and is not you know living up to expectations in terms of values to show to that member state that a price is attached to that kind of behavior, but don't feed it into the NATO channel because the risk of damaging NATO in a field that is not necessarily central to its mission but could still damage it could be too big. And so uh, uh, that's that would be my answer to this. Just a very quick note on on the red line that you asked about. Where is the red line? Uh, and um, and that's something. That is very very hard to answer. I mean, red lines are you know much more about your own resolve to enforce them than they are about the other side's uh, you know misbehavior, and that's that's the tricky part about red lines. Um, but you know, if you wanted to play the game of red lines, when does when do they come? Do they come when uh, Turkey buys um, air defense systems from Russia, uh, thereby undermining technological standards inside of uh, inside of NATO, um, or does it come when um, Turkey fights? Um, groups on the ground, for example, in the Turkish, in, in in the Kurdish conflict, which are on the other side, allies of the United States in the fight against ISIS. You know, is that a conflict that kind of breaks uh, NATO? So far, that hasn't been the case. I think the red line is one of those issues that always reminds me of this, uh, this 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 famous quote. You know, when somebody was asked, you know, what is pornography? Um, you know, and then the answer is, I can't define it, but I know I know it when I see it. And I think that's probably true with the red line as well. As soon as the real red line is reached that is so grave and so dramatic that really the core of NATO's task is at stake, then I think political pressure could build up. Um, But that hasn't been the case so far. Uh, And Rachel, also let me add that the Turkish opposition, unlike the Greek opposition uh, during the 1970s, does not have such expectations uh, from NATO or other Western institutions or allies because the Turkish opposition uh, knows that 
external interference uh, with Turkish politics is counterproductive. As a matter of fact, as uh, Jan has said, even you know public attempts to persuade the Turkish government will uh, backfire. Uh, so I think that Western allies should trust, should have confidence in the Turkish society's own power to put things back in order in Turkey. And I believe that the Turkish society uh, does have this capacity. I just have one um, question kind of getting back to what Jan was talking about this. If we think of NATO as a strategic alliance, right, which makes sense because it is in the end uh, a, a military alliance. Um, but if it's not a strategic alliance anymore against the Soviet Union and it's a, not a strategic alliance for, you know, prosperity and rule of law and protecting those types of societies. Not primarily, right? It's primarily strategic for something, um, but it's not that. Then what are we strate strategically al allying around or against oh, that's today? A, that's a very big question. <laughs> it is a big question. I, I mean, but it seems to me it's existential either, it's a, either it's a sort of your allies with a sort of inside out mission, like a value-based mission, or your allies against something. It was very clear in the beginning, right, that, you know, they might have put whatever they put in the preamble, but we all knew it was a strategic alliance of sort of protection against Soviet expansion. Uh, I would like to actually make uh, two points, not not relevant to this question. It's just occurred yeah, to me, yeah. just, just two points. First of all, uh, Turkey's commitment to NATO. Turkey is one of the few allies which has participated and shown the flag in each and every NATO operation. Uh -huh. So Turkey has fully fulfilled its commitments to NATO, and there is not a single example uh, when Turkey has not fulfilled their commitments. And, you know, not buying Russian equipment uh, is not a NATO commitment. Or, you know, doing certain things out of area that has nothing to do with NATO members is not a uh, NATO commitment, first of all. So, so far, Turkey has demonstrated full commitment uh, to NATO, and there is no question about it, either in Turkey or in NATO. Second issue is Turkey might be an outlier within NATO, but when you compare Turkey with all the rest of the world, it's still quite similar to other NATO members. So it's relative. You know, where Turkey stands is really relative. If you're looking from Berlin, okay, it may look in a certain way, but if you're looking from other places on the planet, it's actually quite close to other NATO members. I mean, in the end, this is... Uh of course, boils down to philosophical uh, questions of, of relativism versus absolutism. Uh, Western values, of course, claim to be universal and have an absolutist twang to them. Uh, and, and we pride ourselves in their universalism. Uh, and at the same time, that necessarily collides, not just in the NATO context, but in all other contexts as well, all the time with the realities where you may do make compromises, where you do, you know, uh, make deals that, you know, are not necessarily, you know, what you want them to be, but yes, have to do... And it also, it kind of, you know, uh, clashes uh, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, with the, the fact that some, that different people define values differently. Also, that is something that we haven't talked about yet, but it also does exist. So, um, you know, the, the, this normative project of the West with its ideas of universalism is a very, very high standard. And whether it succeeds or not, it's not so much a question of whether you are in compliance with those values every single moment in your life for 100%. The question is, if you do violate them, are you able to self-correct? Uh, 
Can you actually, you know, go back and self-correct? Are you aware of the fact that you have violated? Can you self? That's the real strength of the West. The real strength of the West is not 100% compliance, but awareness of the violation and the willingness to actually, you know, go and repair that. And the same is true in the NATO context. Um, you know, uh, we all know and that the realities of realpolitik out there sometimes demand all kinds of weird deals that you make that are not 100% what you like them to be. And at the same time, you must always be aware of the fact that none of that can be permanent, that those kinds of deals need to be in service of something bigger, need to be temporary, uh, must be corrected after a while again. If that falls away, then we do have a real values problem. As long as it is still within the repairable, you know, it's acceptable. And I think it it uh, it doesn't pose a fundamental existential issues to the values on which NATO is based. Um, okay, that sounds like actually a really good wrapping up point. We have the the sort of pragmatism of occasionally having to, to be flexible um, with this idea of, as Oscar pointed out, some optimism, right? Let's trust that um, this is just one step along a path and um, and and that that's going to end up again in a better place in terms of... You know. And there's a time marker. By the time you're broadcasting this, Erdogan might be gone. Okay. <laughs> that's very interesting, Oscar. You might have to talk about that in, uh, in your think or tank somehow. Yeah. All right. So we'll wait and see if that happens. In the meantime, uh, we came to our final segment of the podcast. As always, we have asked our guests to come with a think or a tank, something uh, that they came across recently or rediscovered recently uh, that made them think or something uh, that has totally tanked. I'm going to start with Uzgo. I'm going to start with you. I have many tanks, actually, but I'm not <laughs> going to mention them. You know, we, we need to be optimistic and energetic. So I will I will talk about a think, which is uh, a book I have recently read on competitive authoritarianism written by uh, Stephen Lewitsky and Lucas Wei. Uh, this book analyzes uh, hybrid regimes uh, in, uh, in the aftermath of the Cold War, which are not fully democratic, but in which politics is competitive and political power is derived from democratic institutions and particularly elections. And in these societies, although elections are not fair, are actually highly unfair, the elections are still real and competitive with a, uh, with a, with a result cannot be predetermined, unlike in some places where uh, elections are just a show. So the authors argue that at some point, as a result of uh, several factors, these regimes face a crisis moment. Now, he has analyzed several of these regimes, and he has, they have found out, not he, they have found out that if those regimes are have geographic proximity to Europe or and have political relations with Western countries, they tilt towards democracy in the aftermath of the crisis. But if they don't have geographical proximity to Europe and uh, they don't have any political relations with Western countries, then they tilt towards autocracy. Now, we're talking about Turkey. And if we assume that Turkey is also a regime where the regime is not fully democratic, but politics is competitive, there will be a moment in Turkey where Turkey will tilt towards one direction. And I believe that Turkey's relations with the West will determine which direction Turkey tilts towards. And it's in the interest of the West that the West maintains the relationship with Turkey strong so that when that day comes, Turkey would tilt towards democracy rather than the other way around. Okay, sounds very good and very on topic. 
I have a think as well. Um, this is a bit of a log roll because it's from the May-June issue of the Berlin Policy Journal. They're friends of mine. I used to work there and I still work with them occasionally, but I had nothing to do with this issue. It's an issue about Europe. There's a picture basically of Sisyphus on the cover, you know, pushing up a rock up a mountain that has the European Union flag. So this made me think because that image is based on an um, interview that they have in the issue with Wolfgang Schäuble, who was the German finance minister during, you know, during the recent debt crises and a pretty sort of controversial figure in Europe and a very, you know, well-known famous figure in Germany. So the title of the interview is, first of all, I strongly advise against arrogance, so quote, end quote, um, which is a quote of Schäuble, which is interesting. I think some um, Southern Europeans might find that a bit funny. The, the thing I, that really made me think is in the interview, um, they talked to Schäuble about him being a sort of European optimist. And then Schäuble talks about the image of Sisyphus pushing this rock up the hill and mentions a Camus interpretation of that, which is Camus said, you know, you have to think of Sisyphus as being happy doing this, as sort of, you know, pushing the rock up the hill every day, day in, day out, over and over again, um, that he's that he's happy in this process. You know, this really makes me think about the process of European integration. If the whole process is just pushing a rock up the hill, going nowhere, but that the process itself is worth it nonetheless and is something Europe should be happy about. It's, it's a kind of a philosophical way of thinking about European integration. You could even get meta and say the issue itself is the same thing because it's all these kind of German Europeanists sort of pushing for, you know, more European leadership from Germany. So, and this is something that all these German Europeanists say over and over and over again. And um, and one hopes they, like Sisyphus, don't give up and keep kind of pushing this rock up the hill. So just a kind of multi-layered way of thinking about what's going on in Europe. And I recommend the um, the issue to everyone. It's it's free. You can get it in the app. Uh, if you want to look at what German Europeanists are, are thinking about Europe and the prospects for Europe. Jan. Um, yes, I also do have a recommendation, uh, so some something to read and to think about. And that is um, a book that was published um, uh, recently by Jeremy Suri, who's a professor of history at the University of Texas, um, who wrote a book about the impossible presidency, basically about um, uh, the research um, that he has done um, and uh, and which has led to the conclusion that the office, as it is currently designed, the office of the President of the United States, um, is one in which no uh, uh, contender, nobody who is in that office can possibly succeed because the job description is too large. What needs to be covered by one person who's the head of state, uh, who's a symbol of the republic, who is a chief you know, uh, conductor of legislative affairs, who is a foreign policy strategist, who is the commander in chief and so many, many more things, it is not possible for one human being to fulfill that job in any kind of satisfactory way. And then if that is the case, indeed, and I think you can make a very good case that that's true, then it raises all kinds of issues of governance, obviously. You know, how can we organize uh, in the 21st century uh, democratic government, government, democratic processes, uh, but still have them somehow effective, make them somehow effective and make them capable of resolving issues. How can we organize accountability and participation in a way 
um, you know, that uh, that they're, you know, effective enough to solve the big problems and yet guarantee that no power grab, no, uh, not, not too much inefficiency takes place. And you can build that argument around the presidency. I think that book makes that case very, very well. And uh, the book was also the trigger for a recent cover story in The Atlantic um, that asked the same question in a much shorter version, obviously, but made that case as well. And it is interesting that in this very specific time where pressure on the inside and pressure on the outside on democracies is rising, um, that we're starting to question our constitutional designs and the way that we have set up, you know, uh, specific parts of, of our democracy. And uh, this is one of the most intelligent book that asks more questions, obviously, than it answers, but it leads us straight to the point of how we should actually, you know, constitute ourselves if we want to survive. Interesting. And the, there's an Atlantic article by the author. No, that's another author, um, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, it leans very heavily in the same direction and asks the same question and, uh, and I think also uses some of the research as, as, as evidence in that article. We'll, we'll link to both of those things um, on the show page. Uzka, Jan, thanks again uh, for joining us for this episode. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rachel, for the Out of Order is a German Martial Fund podcast produced by Kelsey Glover. Sound design by Zachary Tarrant. <laughs>